Ezra chapter 3. Let's turn there in our Bibles. Ezra chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 7 through 13. This is a text that was sort of uncharted waters for me this week, and I dove in, and there was a lot there. And I made it through this morning and first hour, and so hopefully the Lord will visit um, these words again and give us a word to each of our hearts. Verse 7, So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua, with his sons and his brothers, and Kadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel." And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the, sh from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. And Lord, as we have just sung a prayer for you to open the eyes of our hearts, we pray, God, that you would do that supernatural work at this time. God, this is a discipline to study your word together. But this is a time of worship and devotion where we are devoting ourselves to you. And Lord, we want to concentrate on what you're doing in our lives. We pray that your Holy Spirit would move this morning in our hearts and that he would teach us from the truth and guide us in ways that we need to repent, in ways that we need to change. We pray that he would mold us make us and shape us into the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, be lifted on high as we study this text about rebuilding, rebuilding a temple, but also rebuilding our lives and our lives together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, as I've studied the truth over a couple decades, I uh, have found that there are some interesting truths in scripture that are very freeing 
but on the surface they can seem very frustrating at the same time. Put another way, some of the most frustrating ideas in Scripture turn out to be the most freeing ideas in Scripture. One of them is this. It takes a long time to grow spiritually. I, I think for me, I want the idea of a quick fix or a revival to happen in my life. When I see a sin in my life or a sin pattern, I want that to just go away, for it just to drop out of my life. And what the Bible says we are to do is we're supposed to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness, 1 Timothy 4, 7. We're supposed to train ourselves as if we're in a gymnasium working out, working out with the spiritual disciplines of prayer and Bible study, of repenting, of growing together, of confronting each other, of working together in our spiritual lives to grow. And that kind of discipline can be very frustrating at times because we want change in our lives to be more immediate. But as soon as you begin to understand that God is in control, in complete control of your spiritual life and your progress in growth and in godliness... And as soon as you realize that it's a marathon race rather than a sprint, and you sort of allow the Lord to work in your life over a long period of time, then that can be very freeing for your life. That can be encouraging, that you don't have to get completely well or spiritually better on something by tomorrow. But it's something that God will work on over the years in your life. This idea of getting back to the basics of Christianity and Christian living emerged from the text because we're looking at the children of Israel embarking on rebuilding the temple. And this text is so much more than just bricks and mortar. It's so much more than a building project. This text is about a community of believers starting over again and rebuilding in fellowship and in worship together once again. What they're doing is they are getting back to the basics of spiritual life, which reminded me of a football illustration. And please forgive me for using a football illustration post-football season. I realize that it's over, but I could not resist. Many of you are familiar with the great coach Vince Lombardi from the Green Bay Packers primarily. He was the great coach of the 50s and the 60s who won the very first two Super Bowls. And that's why the Super Bowl trophy is named for him. He would use five words every year at the beginning of preseason with his team. This was the meeting that was known as the most intimidating coach's speech that he would give all year long. And he would start with sort of the freshman class players in the room and the rest of the team gathered together with a long stare down until he got their attention. Then he would reach up and hold a football up and say five words. Gentlemen, this is a football. And as he began that speech, he would talk about how it's made of leather and has string and it's shaped in a certain way to be thrown and caught in a certain way. Then he would bring the team out into the football stadium and he would say, this is out of bounds and certain things happen when you step out of bounds. This is the end zone. This is where you are supposed to score. 
and he would just repeat over and over and over again. And repetition was the key to his coaching, saying you got to get back to the basics and never forget the basics of the game, the fundamentals. Well, those basics are found in this text in terms of how you are to rebuild your life. Rebuilding your life is not a quick fix. It's not something where you are an overnight success. Rebuilding yourself spiritually is something the Lord does over time as we get back to the basics of the Christian life. The basics. You might say, well, you don't realize, Pastor Jeff, how sin-racked I am. You don't know what I'm involved in. I am outside of the pale of God's grace and rescue at this point. Well, that's not true. If you begin to understand the ocean of God's grace that's there waiting for you, that you can come into and fall into, then you can begin to understand that there's all kinds of reason to believe that the Lord can rebuild you. Hey, if the Lord built you in the first place, do you believe that he can rebuild your life again? You should. God is in charge of our spiritual sanctification, of our Christ-likeness, of our growth curve. He's in charge of that. On our parts, it just takes going back to the fundamental means of grace to grow therein. Reading the word of God, praying, fellowshipping with one another, giving, serving, mentoring, being mentored. These are all gifts to us for us to grow. And we find this body here is one that wants to rebuild and grow. Once again, they've been in exile. The first wave has come back 50 years after being in exile. There are young people, there are older people, they've traveled home and they're ready to rebuild. And this, as we have seen over the months, was a community that deserved to be in exile. I mean, they had earned their exile out of Jerusalem, and they were sin-wracked. They were involved in all kinds of idolatries and immoralities, and it was time for them to be reborn once again in worshiping God. The psalmist David says in Psalm 11:3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? You know what the answer is? Be rebuilt by God. Rebuild the foundation. Start over again. Well, it takes two commitments. It takes two commitments. Rebuilding for God takes two commitments. We find these commitments in this text. The first one is that it takes getting back to the basics. Getting back to the basics. The first basic discipline that we're going to see in verse 7 is they gave together. They were givers. They were giving together. Look at this in verse 7. So they gave money. Just stop there. (laughs) Now this isn't a sermon on giving money, but it's a sermon instead on the fact that they gave corporately together. They were on mission. They were sold out in terms of the vision that God had presented for them to all be a part of together. It actually isn't a sermon or a text on sacrificial giving because as you see at the end of verse 7 that Cyrus, the pagan king from Persia, former Babylonia, that had sent them down to Judah and Jerusalem, he had funded the project. He was funding this building program. So it really is more about the, the people of God getting on mission 
seeing beyond the, the pagan-funded building project, seeing this as a gospel venture to give glory to God, recentralizing the glory of God down in the southern kingdom once again, reestablishing and together buying into that mission and putting the money forward strategically for this project to be done right. They wanted it to be done right. They wanted it to be biblical. They wanted it to reflect the first temple project that had happened. They wanted the timing of this project to be in sync with what had happened under Solomon's watch so many years before with the first temple. They wanted this thing to echo that temple and, and to be beautiful and glorious and biblically correct. They were very concerned about that. And so you see in verse 7, they acquired some talent says they gave money to masons and carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and Tyrians. Tyrians. In other words, they went to outsource this project with some talent. They went to Tyre and they went to Sidon. They found the greatest masons or hewers of stone and the greatest carpenters to come in under their watch to get this thing done Rightly, They were very deliberate about this. They were very concerned for this to go well. They were motivated. Let me just segue outside of the text for a second and say, are you motivated to rebuild in your own life? You've got to be this sold out, this all in for God to rebuild. You've got to be able to give towards your own spiritual life. And God, he has given to us all of the power and all of the resources we need to rebuild, no matter where we are spiritually. This, again, supersedes a building project as brick and mortar. This is about a community being built together to worship at a greater height and greater depth. It should be a concern for all of us. None of us are overnight success stories, right? My wife and I, we... Uh, we like to watch a TV show. Um, you know, I always um, am concerned to tell on ourselves, right, with what shows we'll watch. But we watch uh, Shark Tank. Any of you watch that? It's kind of an interesting show of some successful entrepreneurs who are probably multi-million and maybe billionaires who, who sort of sit in front of people who are inventors who want to become a success story. So they come in with their invention and try to sell it to these different people for them to become investors in their invention so that they will become successful. And you see people sometimes sell their inventions and the sharks get excited about it and they debate over, you know, who's going to invest or not. And, and it's an interesting show to watch. Well, recently I was watching the show and there was a magician who came in and he brought his magic to act and he wanted to sort of um, sell himself and his show to a Las Vegas venue. And he was asking for a million bucks to sell his show there. And ultimately, the Sharks immediately picked up on this and said, you know what, you're overshooting. You're asking for too much money, and there are too many shows just like yours already in Las Vegas. So you're overshooting. And one Shark very wisely said this, and I just thought this was interesting. You basically, he counseled the guy to say, you need to take 15 years to become an overnight success. I just thought, you know, that's the principle here. It takes time and effort to build correctly. 
and to build a foundation that will be strong. And if you're ever, if you've ever been part of a building project, whether it's putting a tent up or a house up or a building up, you know that the foundation is everything in terms of the success, the future success of the structure. So they were trying to do it right. And they, you know, contracted cedar trees to be brought down from um, Tyre inside. And this is 10 and 20 miles north of Israel in the Phoenician land. And they would come, uh, they would send these 120 foot long straight trees that were, you know, known around the world as the strongest trees to build with. They would send these down on a raft down to Joppa for this construction event. Uh, the cedars of Lebanon really were famous. They were conquested after um, by Egypt and other nations and lands because people wanted to build their ships with these 120-foot-long trees. Um, they were known for their odor that would keep pestilence and insects away and keep their strength. They didn't have the knots that other trees would have, so they would be cut straight in terms of boards and, and building together. Whole naval fleets were constructed by the cedars of Lebanon that would create these fleets that would be formidable. And, and so the Israelites wanted these massive trees, 40 foot around with their girth. I mean, very, very strong to use. They were using the best quality and best materials to get down the road. We have these kinds of resources symbolically to rebuild with in the church, by the way. You know, the Word of God, that is, that is the best book that you can turn to to rebuild your life. You might say, that's so basic. We're here to hear the Word of God. Of course that's true, but do you read it? Do you avail yourself of the best building material for your life? I mean, they, these people were aggressive to rebuild, and we need that kind of aggressive passion over the Scripture to rebuild. Do you have a prayer partner? The gift of prayer and praying together is a beautiful gift to rebuild your life with. I would encourage you with that. Again, 2 Peter 1.3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him. You've got everything you need. The Bible and Jesus Christ Himself, whom the Bible reflects, is sufficient for spiritual growth. Well, they were giving together, and then secondly, they were serving together. The first discipline, or the first um, basic for Christian rebuilding is giving. Second is serving, verses 8 and 9. Look at the timetable they were functioning on. It says, now in the second year after they're coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month. You'll remember from last week, they had already taken a month to just go to the altar and sacrifice to the Lord. They were bringing their gifts and their animals to the Lord to sacrifice and worship to God. They were going to the sort of burned down um, site where the temple had been in Jerusalem, where the altar was specifically placed. And they, they put together cut stones to worship God through sacrificial giving. And they were doing that in the ceremonial system of the Old Testament. The trumpets, the feast of Passover, the feast of booze. They were very serious about worship first. But they were also equally serious to, to sort of carefully for seven months acquire these building materials. And as soon as the month of Tishri was done to start building. And they started building in that timetable because they wanted to be in exact synchronization with how Solomon had done it before them. 
They wanted to be biblical. They wanted to do it the way God says to grow. I mean, how many ways do we think up to try to grow ourselves, right? What psychological systems are we sort of leaning on or pick-me-ups or motivational speeches are we grasping onto? What intervention are we looking for instead of going to how the Bible says to do it? And they, they just, there were no frills here. I mean, there was going to be no Ark of the Covenant this time. There was going to be no fire coming down from heaven to consume the altar, I mean, to consume the sacrifice on the altar. There was no Shekinah glory that was going to fill the place this time. There were no bells and whistles. They were just fundamentally trying to rebuild and do it according to the scripture. A lot of times you hear people say, you know, if God spoke directly to me like he did to Abraham and Moses, I would have been a warrior for God too. But that's missing the point of the power of the word of God and the point of how we're supposed to lean in faith on the truth and watch God supernaturally work over a period of time. Right? Some of the most frustrating principles in scripture are really the most freeing ones because once we go, okay, it's supposed to take a long time, then we're free. We're free to progress spiritually. Well, secondly, they were serving together. And they were serving under leaders that we've mentioned already. Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the high priest. Um, these men, they come out to the forefront in leadership here. They're the ones pointing the way. Oswald Sanders, the great Christian author, said everything rises and falls on leadership. That's true. However, notice what kind of leadership they are portraying here. They're out front, but they, as soon as they get things going, sort of sublimate themselves into the background. It says, they made a beginning, the middle of verse 8, together with the rest of their kinsmen. So they're out front, but then they fade in with the rest of the kinsmen. They're subcontracting some pagan help in Phoenicia to get the building materials, to get the specialists to come in. But then they gather their ethnic kinsmen around and say, hey, let's do this together. You know, the idea of a unified mission or unity in general is threaded throughout this text. Let me just mention that to you. I already mentioned how they gave money together in verse 7. They were in a collective mission together. But then you see that word in verse 8, together with the rest of the kinsmen. That's, that word's repeated, at least in the English Bible, in verse 9, that they were together supervising the workmen that unity theme is there. And then in verse 10, we're going to see that they worshiped together. In verse 11, they sang responsively in antiphonal worship together. They were together for this gospel-driven mission. There's a lot of unity, and a lot can get done in the body of Christ when there is unity, when there is a spirit of oneness. Philippians chapter 2 talks about being of the same mind. Paul is saying, look, church, you can go forward if you are of the same mind and you'll prefer one another in the process. Well, look at verse 8 again. They made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priest and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from captivity. So they're not just working with kinsmen in general, but there is somewhat of a pecking order here from Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, to Joshua, the high priest. Then you have the priests that were under them, and you have the Levites. And it's interesting to me that these spiritual leaders are the ones who are supervising this project. 
You've got people who are workers. You've got probably some pagan workers. You've got kinsmen who are there. And the key is that the priests and the Levites are the ones watching over the workers. Supervision is a major theme in these verses here. It's repeated in verse 8 and verse 9. To supervise, the end of verse 8, to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And verse 9, they supervised the workmen. Why is it that priests and Levites were the supervisors? You know why? Because the priest and the Levites knew the rationale or the reason behind the mission. It wasn't enough just to get a skilled you know, piece of the building done. It wasn't enough for the wood to be laid skillfully or for the art to aesthetically, you know, sort of pop where people go, wow, that's really beautiful. No, that wasn't the point of rebuilding this temple. The priests and the Levites knew that the mission was about God and his glory, and it was to facilitate worship. They were faith-driven leaders. They weren't trying to build something for opulence or to, to attract people. They were building to be biblical and to be God-honoring and glorifying to him. So, they put, so God put the priests in charge and the Levites in charge because they knew the point of the building project was deeper than bricks and mortar. What's interesting to me is uh, how this sort of pecking order um, lays out. It says that the priests and the Levites who had come to Jerusalem, and then it says they appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. The reason that's interesting to me is there's sort of a sense in which the body here, the community of believers, needed to stretch. The 20-year-olds had to stretch out and actually become official leaders, and the older people who were part of this community had to be okay with that. Um, typically, to be a Levite, according to the book of Numbers, you had to be at least 25, preferably 30 to 50 years old. It's actually a requirement to be at least 25. Here, there was an allowance made for basically sophomores in college to be leading this building project for God. Okay, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, 20 years of age is pretty young. It just is. I mean, until you're 20, you actually got a free pass on certain issues, even moral issues of the children of God as they were going through the wilderness. Those who were 20 and above, those were the ones that were condemned not to go into the promised land. But if you were younger than that, you got a pass at some level. Do you see what I'm saying? So to be 20 and be respected at this level, to be the supervisors, the ones who were the accountants and the precision accounting that was going on of this project is monumental. It's kind of like a church plant where you say, well, who's going to be the elders of this church plant in this small town or this other country around the world? Well, all we got is young people, so we're going to start with the 20-year-olds, you know, or, or the 25-year-olds who are going to step out and lead because they, they just are trusting in the word. Uh, Paul said to Timothy, don't let anyone despise or look down on your youthfulness, but through speech and purity of life and character, show yourself as an example. Guard your life and guard what? The scripture, and that's your authority to lead. And that was a scary church. First and second Timothy talks about the church that Timothy was to take over. That was the church at Ephesus, where the apostle John probably attended at the time. And young Timothy, who could have been in his early 30s, was supposed to stand up and deal with raising up elders, with ferreting out 
false teachers that were trying to disrupt, disrupt the church. And so Timothy had to step out. And in the same way, these 20-year-olds had to step out and stand in confidence with the Word of God to lead. And I think sometimes we give ourselves an out. We give ourselves a pass not to serve, not to be a servant leader. And we shouldn't do that. Confidence in spiritual leadership always comes from the truth, from what the Scripture says, uh, how we're supposed to live and what we're supposed to say. We, we lean on the Bible, and that's why we can do what we do. That's why you can teach people. That's why you can mentor people, because of the Word, not because of your perfect life. The Holy Spirit makes up the difference in that and develops our character to be able to lead and serve in this way. And so they were supervising this project. They were very, very concerned about details. You know, two times the word supervision is mentioned, and I just want to emphasize that because they were supervising the idea of them trying to be as biblical as possible in a situation that was kind of low key. Again, there's no Shekinah glory here. There's no fire from heaven. There's no bells and whistles. It's just being precise and faithful to Scripture. You know, that's my calling in life. Every week of my life, I'm trying to build a sermon, hopefully something that will rebuild my life and rebuild your lives as a community. That's what we're always about. And I believe that, yes, I want to connect with you. I want to illustrate the text. I want to, at times, bring something that's a current event to try to keep it interesting. But primarily, my mission is just to cut straight the Word of God and make it clear to your own heart so you can understand it better. I'm meditating to make you meditative on Scripture. You see? That's it. That, that's what I do. And, and I believe the more that you are captivated by the word of God, the more that you buy into the idea that you want to be clear with scripture, the more motivated you will be and more confident you'll be to share the message with other people. Evangelism, getting outside your comfort zone is simply this, saying, hey, do you want to study the word of God that's about Jesus? Do you want to do that with me? Do you want to do it at church with me? Do you want to do it right now? It's just talking about Jesus from the scripture. And the more excited you are about the Bible and about being clear about the Bible, the more you'll be excited to gather people around you, whether at church or other places around the Bible. This church is unique in Anchorage, and I don't want it to stand out in your minds as better than any other church. I mean, we're, we're just a gospel mission post, like other gospel mission posts around our sweet, dear state. However, the commitment here for 35 plus years is to the expository preaching of Scripture. And that's why we should be excited about our church and our opportunity. It's because we're just opening the Bible. And any church that's opening the Bible in clarity, expositing the Scripture should be proud of that. Not in a sinful way, but in an exhilarating way where we're trying to be precise with the truth. And that's what these workers were committed to. Now, why were they? Well, first of all, we've seen that getting back to the basics is giving together. Secondly, is serving together. Well, thirdly, they were worshiping together. And I believe that their precision with the word of God is what drove very exuberant worship. 
Look at this in verse 10. It says, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priest and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, the king of, king of Israel. Well, what happened? Well, they laid the foundation and the foundation laying. Once that was done, they realized that they were recapturing what had happened so many years ago where the first temple was laid. And so the only natural response for the community was to respond like they did when the first temple foundation was laid. And they did. They responded in the exact same way. Turn back with me to 2 Chronicles to see this. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to look at just verses 1 through 3. 2 Chronicles 7. Look at this. This is what happened when Solomon, he was instructed by David. And then remember, David sinned, so he couldn't finish the temple off. And so Solomon, his son, took over as King Solomon for this moment, for the temple foundation to be laid for the temple um, to be built and this is what happened in verse 7 as soon as Solomon finished his prayer fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house when all the people of Israel saw the fire Come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple. They bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now, in this scene in Ezra chapter 3, it's very similar except for a few things. Again, I've said this already there was no fire, there was no Shekinah. There was no Ark of the Covenant. There, there was just simply the fact that they were being faithful to do the basic work that needed to be done. That was the same work at the same timetable of the first temple. They laid the foundation. And so there was a spontaneous exuberance about that where they were overwhelmed with joy. And they, they sort of did it in the same way Solomon did. Priests came forward in verse 10 of Ezra 3, investments in the same robes. They came forward with trumpets, which are these three foot long sort of cylinder, you know, a little bit bigger than flutes, um, trumpets where they're do, giving trumpet blasts. They're clanging cymbals together, making a loud, joyful noise. Every time a trumpet was blown in the Old Testament, it was for joy. They were probably singing Psalm 106, 107, and 118 about the goodness and faithfulness of God. Look at verse 11. They sing responsively or antiphonally where they would answer each other back and forth in singing. And they said the same words that were said in 2 Chronicles 7. For he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. God, you are always, always faithful. And they were loud about it. Can I emphasize that for a second? They were loud. They were exuberant. They were overwhelmed. Why? You know why? Because they knew that they were saved. They knew that they were God's children. They had come out of exile. They had sort of recalibrated their whole world. They had reestablished themselves. They had been there for 
a year, into their second year. They'd been gathering building materials for seven months. They had worshipped God in the same way publicly that they had done before being in exile. They had been gone for 50 plus years at that point because it was the first wave of exiles coming back. And they laid the foundation. They tried to be as biblical as possible. They tried to do it exactly the right way. They had designed, you know, this pecking order of kinsmen who were working. You had your priests and your Levites. And suddenly, okay, the foundation is done. This is real. It's on. And we're going to get excited about it. Because you know what? We know who we are. Do you know who you are as a believer? Do you know that you are His? That you're a Christian? That you're a follower of Christ? That you are radically saved for eternity? That you were part of the past temple that was burned to the ground and the second temple that was reconstructed. That you're part of the church temple now. Do you know that? Do you know that your whole faith is built on the apostles and the prophets where Jesus Christ himself, the second member of the Trinity, is the chief cornerstone and he's the head of this living temple that you are living stones and you're part of that. That every time you give and every time you serve, you're this worker, you're this kinsman, you're this priest. Every time you pray for somebody, every time you intercede for somebody, you are part of this. I love to be the preacher because I get to shout. <laughs> they, they shouted. They made a loud noise and they couldn't contain themselves because they knew who they were. Their life had meaning. They got it. They were rescued. They were delivered and starting over. There's no greater joy than when you're worshiping God and you suddenly get this rush flood over you where you know who you are as a Christian, right? Nothing else compares. No dangling temptation can hold up to that knowledge that you know who you are in the Lord. That is what drives this kind of worship. Now, let me just venture out side of the Bible for a second, just tell you something that struck me as interesting and sort of connects with the spontaneity of this worship. I've been reading through a book, it's a, kind of a weird sociologist named Malcolm Gladwell, and it's called Blink. He also wrote The Tipping Point. And he talks about how people sort of, you know, stand up as mind readers around, and, and basically he sleuthed out how they do it by doing a neurological, you know, test exam, kind of a lab exam, watching people's different facial expressions and how there is involuntary facial expressions that happen that you really can't naturally conjure up. Like your eyebrows do funny things, and, and neurologically, you know, your, 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 you know, your forehead will get sort of wrinkly in certain ways or your lips will do certain things or your eyes will dilate in certain reactions and certain responses. And people read that and then predict what you're thinking. It's just the, the involuntary nature of who we are where something can enter the back of our mind and cause us to react physically. Well, I think in a spiritual sense, that's what's happening here. This kind of exuberance and loudness and emotion cannot be conjured up through just superficial thinking. This is what happens for those who are part of the beloved. Those who are part of the community worship uniquely in this way. And it rises out of you. It, it's born in the toes of your feet and comes all the way up through your mouth where you burst forth in praise. 
I think we need to have permission granted to us to be able to worship in this kind of uproarious, loud, strong, affected way for God and his glory. Because this is what the children of Israel did as an example for us. They knew God had been steadfast, has said. It's a Hebrew word that's used over and over again in the Old Testament that God is faithful to his covenant. All the way back from Abraham, all the way to that point, and his faithfulness endures forever for his people and he's good they shouted with a great shout i i have never probably witnessed a shouting like this this is really a warrior cry or like a battle cry loudness that was taking place loudness um, no i think baseball or football or basketball stadium really can you know be a contest of this kind of loudness well in the context of this, there's a unique, almost surprising contrast that happens beginning in verse 12. Look at this. It says, But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. Suddenly there is a great contrast and almost a surprising dissonance between these younger, exuberant people. They've got nothing to compare their experience with. They're just excited. The new temple foundation is laid and we're going for it. Then suddenly you have this older crowd. Really, these are the older leaders of the building project, right? It's sort of a surprise that suddenly they are spontaneously erupting in loud wailing and weeping. It's a surprise, probably even to them. They're overwhelmed with emotion and they don't know where it's necessarily coming from, where they have constructed and overseen the laying of this foundation and they are overwhelmed with emotion. And the emotion in this case is weeping and wailing at a loudness that rivals the exuberant, joy-filled worship expression. There's in the Hebrew construction, there's a sort of wow. It's a, it's, a, it's a construction of like an and statement or however statement that says, listen, you, you, have, you have rejoicing, but you also have wailing. And that is, that is sort of coming together to create a loud noise that you can't distinguish between the rejoicing and the weeping that's going on. You know, you... I think it's important for us to not be too hard on these older men, though, because of the level of emotion that would come into the hearts of people who had been there. They were there when Babylonia and Nebuchadnezzar creamed the first temple. It's like they're war veterans. They were there. They saw it. They saw people die. They saw terror. They saw fire. They saw it burn to the ground. And then they had to go for 50 years into a new environment and reestablish themselves in exile, being punished for their sins. So there's all kinds of regret, there's all kinds of remorse, there's all kinds of emotion and passion that's reconnecting with what they're seeing again. Some people try to sort of make this superficial. A lot of commentators did this where they say, you know, they were just disappointed with what they saw. It was like the first building project was beautiful and opulent and glorious and 
this is sort of the stripped down car job, you know, that's, that's sort of the second purchase that you're dissatisfied with. It's a sense of nostalgia here where you're just sad about the product of what you have now. And I think it's, I think it's deeper than that. I think it's a little bit left unclear on purpose in this text to give us the sense of the confluence of emotion over this kind of moment. You know, there's diversity in the church. There's a diverse way that people are going to respond to different things. And it's almost like you have war veterans who are returning after World War II, 50 years later, to Pearl Harbor when they were there. And suddenly they're overwhelmed with emotion. They don't know what to do with themselves. I met with a professor who was a friend of mine, became a friend of mine. I took six classes with him at my college, and he taught me the word and how to study the word of God inductively and put together sermons. And so we, we met, I was coming back through Lynchburg before I came here for the first time um, two and a half years ago. And we met over lunch and we were talking about Alaska and he had a connection to Alaska um, in this way. He'd never been to Alaska, but he said during World War II, and this man I'm talking to, he's 80, you know, he's 80 something now. He said during World War II, his brother was on the SS Juno and the SS Juno was lost at sea. And so he and his mom, he was telling me how they went to California and moved there to just hope against hope that the SS Juno would come into port. So they wanted to get as close as possible to where it possibly could come in. Because I said, why did you move to California? And he, the emotion began to roll over him in terms of why they moved there and the loss of his brother. And he said to me, Jeff, if you could just go to Juneau when you go to Alaska and go to this monument, this memorial, where my brother's name will be etched in the stone, just, just observe it for me, which I haven't done yet but need to do. There's emotion bound up in ways that we don't always expect to emote, right? Things that are memorials to us, things that are meaningful to us. I sort of was thinking about this national building project in terms of a building project that's going on right now in our nation. It's a very it's a multi-billion dollar project in New York City where you have the Freedom Tower that's being built where every week a new story is being built of this Freedom Tower where the Twin Towers went down at 9-11 10 plus years ago. There's a lot of press about that in September at the 10 year mark, right? Well, I sort of did some research about that because it's called one of the most complicated construction sites in the world. It's sort of a 16-acre lot where trade centers are going up. You have two memorial pools. This is, uh, it's going to stand 1,776 feet one day. It's, it's destined to be 105 stories and will cost more than $3 billion. will be the, the tallest skyscraper in the Western Hemisphere. It's 81 stories at this point. There's all kinds of talk about the safety of this building and how the core is going to be extra strong. The stairwells are going to be extra wide if something happens where people need to evacuate. They're trying to do it right where they have different core cylinders where if a couple begin to fail, the other ones will take over for it so it will stay structurally sound. This tower is, is said to, to beat out or exceed New York's building code standards. Why? Why? Why is everyone so concerned to spend this kind of money or people are 
overwhelmingly concerned for this project to go on with our downturned economy. Why? That's because the emotion of what happened 10 years ago. There's, there's that heart investment in a building project like this for something to be rebuilt because it stands for something. It means something to us as a nation. That's why there's heart investment in this way. And, you know, there are these two pools called the memorial pools that lay um, next to each other and they have waterfalls that go over the sides of these dark sort of marble pools and etched in the side of, of the pools are 100, 1,500 names of the victims of those who died at 9-11 in the pools and the water washes over the names like tears over each one of them. And I was thinking about that and thinking about the emotion behind those pools and this man named Michael Arad, he wrote this, he said, I think when you take in the scale of the space and you see these close to 1,500 names that surround each pool, it's a monument of comprehension. It's not an easy moment and it shouldn't be. It's a sad moment, but it's a sad moment of understanding what happened that day as you stand here I wanted people to be able to have that moment of quiet and thoughtful contemplation. So again, we shouldn't overly judge these older men who were seeing the rebuilding take place. There was a, there's something also called the survivor's tree that's right there on the scene with other trees that have been planted. This is a tree that basically had been blown apart during 9-11. 95% of it was destroyed and they sort of patched it together and now 10 years later this tree is flourishing. And as I looked at that on a YouTube video, I began to feel the emotion well up in my own heart of, of pride and national pride and desire for us to stand up as a nation. And I think that there is some of that emotion here with this crowd. But there's also a subtle temptation here where I think that part of the reason why these older people were crying and wailing at this level is they were looking backwards into the past and they were staying there instead of taking in the moment and then moving to the present and looking to the future. Now, why do I say that? Well, there's a prophet who actually spoke to this, prophet, the prophet Haggai. Turn to Haggai chapter 2. Haggai is one of the main prophets here during this time who's preaching the word to these people so that they will get through the building project. He's one of the key prophets that shows up later when the project is stalled who says, look, obey God rather than man. Move ahead. And in Haggai chapter 2, it says, it documents that it's the seventh month on the 21st day of the month. It's right when they were building this foundation. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. He's speaking to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and Joshua as well, the high priest. And then in verse 3, Haggai poses this question. He says, who is left among you who saw this house in its former days? So he's singling out this older crowd. And he's saying, who is... Who would stand up and say they saw the house in its former glory? And then he says this, how do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? He challenges them. 
says, look, you know, in its former glory, there was fire, there was Shekinah glory, there was the Ark of the Covenant, there were these sort of manifestations of God, and, and you're looking backwards and regretting the fact that you lost that. You know, you sinned, you were exiled, there were consequences to your sin, and, and you're stuck. And Haggai sort of takes a biblical, you know, sort of stick and wedges them out of being stuck in past remorse. There's a real temptation here sometimes to look back at your life and say, you know what, if only I had gone a different direction. And you, you look back at the first temple part of your life and you go, I was burned to the ground. I was rolling along, I was doing fine, and then I got punished for what I did. And I'm stuck there. And Haggai doesn't want him to stay stuck. You know, the gospel is very interesting because the gospel in, is in Ezra in this sense. There's the past, the first temple. There's the second temple. And guess what? There's a future temple, Revelation 21, where the presence of Christ is there. And the second temple, without the bells and whistles, is a call for this believing community to look forward to future grace. You always got to look forward. You learn from the past. You rejoice in the present, but the gospel is full-orbed and it looks future to a future temple. And you can see that even in verse 9, the latter, Haggai 2, 9, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this space I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. There will be the millennial kingdom worship that is perfect. And so don't get stuck in the past is what this prophet is saying. Now, again, I don't want to beat up on these people too much. They were overwhelmed with emotion. And actually, Ezra chapter 3, if you turn back there, it's not condemning their weeping and wailing here. It says they wept with a loud voice, verse 12, when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. And many shouted, though many shouted aloud for joy. It says, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. There's some dissonance here. There's some diversity. And like I said before, there's diversity in the church. That's part of what makes the church beautiful. I kind of want to flip it on its head. You know, you don't want to be stuck in depressed, despondent regret. But at the same time, you want to be real. And if emotion is filling you with sadness, it's not always wrong to be sad. Jesus is the, was the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Paul was rejoicing and sorrowing at the same time. The psalm says to rejoice, but it also gives you license to be sad over sin. And we live in a fallen world. Jeremiah, a prophet who was prophesying during this time, was the weeping prophet. It's okay to be sad. It's just not okay to stay there. You've got to grieve, and then you've got to progress and look future. That's where the glory of the gospel takes you. And some of this rejoicing and sadness, it reflects the authenticity of the community of faith that's represented here. It's like a symphony where you have major keys and you have minor keys being struck that creates a beautiful symphonic sound. Take it to the younger people in rock and roll. It's the distortion bar on the guitar that you start to move and it creates that distortion in the midst of the song and dissonance. And I know I lost most of you. However, there's something beautiful about that even as well, it's how a song at the end is hung in suspended dissonance and it creates beauty. That's what we see at the end of this text. You know, in some senses for 
people to be wailing and weeping at this level in this uproarious, thunderous way and for them to be moving on and moving ahead with the project anyway, that's the hope of the gospel because only the gospel can get you forward through this kind of hurting. You see that? It carries you ahead. The gospel helps you turn the corner in future grace. And that's a picture. If, if these people were stuck there saying, you know, I, I sort of earned my, my punishment. It was all my fault. Then, and you stay there, then you're forgetting the grace of the gospel and the fact that this is a second chance. It's a second temple opportunity to move ahead. And that's how it should be for us in the Christian life. Well, here's some applications. Number one. I want you to sort of soul search here. Think about these things. First of all, I want you to identify the wrong methods. Let the Lord sort of reveal some wrong methods that you have been applying to try to rebuild your life. What have you been trying to do to rebuild yourself lately? Is it back to the basics? Is it the Bible basics that are rebuilding you? Or are you going after other means, other quick fixes, other plans, health plans, or psychological plans or quick fix plans or even conference plans or even revivalism plans where you want something to change without the endurance race, the marathon race of the Christian life. Number two, this is key. Have you set the conditions for personal revival to take place in your life? Remember, they, they went after the greatest building projects and the greatest specialists, the hewers of stones, the carpenters. They got all the skilled workers. They're together in that. There's a pecking order. Have you availed yourself of the spiritual disciplines that are found in the Word of God and, and part of our church community for you to grow? You know, perhaps one of the reasons why you're stunted right now in your spiritual life or you feel like there's no way out of a sin-racked condition, is you're just not praying, you're not reading, you're not fellowshipping, you're not connecting with people. You're not discipling, and you're not being discipled. I mean, just understanding the gifts that are given to us in prayer, in the Word of God, in the church, in repenting, confessing, and moving on in the gospel. Understanding those things is a means of grace to you for you to rebuild and be rebuilt by God. Remember, i got to repeat this. If God built you, can he rebuild you? He can. Number three, is the gospel the basis on which you are building your life? It's not enough to grieve or, or to try to fix your past. It's not enough to go back to it and say, ah, I wish I would have been different and I'm going to try to fix it. And I'm going to do this and that. It's not enough. It's always... It is also never enough to merely celebrate the blessings of the present. It's not enough just to live in the moment, show up at church and go, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, that's right. It's got to be something where you understand the past, where God gave you grace, he's giving you grace, and there's a future laid up for you in heaven. God rebuilds believers in terms of their past and present for the future, number four. And I bring this up because I think it's very important. God rebuilds you for a purpose. Do you understand that? Number four is, are you willing to be a servant leader? I bring this up because God is not rebuilding you as an end unto itself. He's rebuilding you to serve in his kingdom. He rebuilds you to reflect his glory and do good works that are laid out for you here on earth from God according to his will. So don't count yourself out of the race just because of something that's happened. God rebuilds you so that you can serve him. And I would encourage you, be a leader. You say, well, I don't have the confidence to be a leader. Well, if you know the word, 
Stand on the word of God. Allow God's grace to make up the difference in your character flaws. And step out and serve. Confidence for being a servant leader should spring from the word of God and spiritual character. Are you willing to be rebuilt so you can get on mission and build? Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together in your word. Lord, we've spent a little bit more time than usual, but God, what a full, rich text that has a lot of meaning for us. And I pray, God, that we would be servants of Christ, that we would be servant leaders and be part of the mission of your local church. I pray that we would spread the word of God to people all around. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.